Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about making movies from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. Today, we're talking about Replicate, a 2002 comedy directed by Frank Longo and starring Ali Landry, best known as the Doritos Girl, and James Roday, who is probably best known for the TV series Psych. Eugene Levy also plays a role. It doesn't have enough critics' reviews for Rotten Tomatoes to give it a tomato meter percentage, but its audience score with 2,159 user ratings is 48%. I didn't work on this, but my guests did, and they're excited to talk about it. First, Annette Hobday, you were the key set production assistant on Replicate. Welcome to Blow the Line. Thank you. Happy to be here. Annette, by way of introduction, IMDb says you're known for Date Night, My First Mister, and Bones. What are you working on now? Uh, right now, I'm working on a show called Dirty John. It was uh, or started out as a LA Times article, four-part article, I believe, that turned into a highly rated podcast. And so we're doing one, it's one season, eight episodes, and we'll be finishing up here in the end of October. And we didn't work together on this, but we were production assistants together back in the day. But you're a second AD now, is that correct? Uh, yeah, um, I'm now working as a second AD. Worked on multiple movies and TV shows. I think the longest running project was Bones, where I started out as the additional and worked my way up to the key second AD. And now I'm back to working as an additional on the current project, Dirty John. Well, we're glad you're here. Thank you. Next, returning to the show are Scott Buckwald, property master, and Dave Clark, the ever-loyal property assistant. Hi, guys. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Skid. Hey. So, Scott, let me ask you, tell me the last thing you worked on with Dave as your property assistant. I believe it was American Pie 3, correct? Yes. Is that right, Dave? Yes, American Pie 3. We, we did a Rob Reiner movie called Alex and Emma, and then we did uh, American Pie 3. And then Dave broke my heart and left. And <laughs> when, was my, when was A Mighty Wind? Was that between those two? No, no, no. It was Mighty Wind, Alex and Emma, and American Pie 3. Because I got Alex and Emma from a recommendation from Mighty Wind people. Okay. I concur. And Dave, my question for you is, what's the last movie you watched that Scott worked on without you? I think it was Cellular. It was one that the day I was leaving town. I started Cellular. Yeah. Uh, we had packed up everything. We had to get out of town. We had to get to our destination that night to get our dog into a kennel. And so we went up to Scott's house to say goodbye as we're leaving town. And that's when he breaks the news to me that he had just gotten called for this huge movie, which changed the course of his entire career. And I've done that to three other people I've worked with <laughs> that in the time that I'm working with them, we are busy, but we're not working on big budget jobs. And it was all film people. And as soon as I would work with them or for them for years at a time, the day I would leave town to go to my next step in my life, their careers would take a turn for the stars and I would start over. You're welcome to everyone I've set on their course to greatness. It's too bad you didn't work on Cellular, Dave. You could have joined us for that podcast. I think we had an empty chair when we recorded that one. So let's bring it back to talk about a film you did work on together with Annette replicate. I watched this on YouTube in 15-minute segments. And yeah, I'm not really sure where to start with this, guys. It was done by the same producers who did the American Pie movies. And for me, it was my introduction to, to those guys. I met Craig Perry on Replicate. And from that, he brought us on to American Pie 2 and then American Pie 3. So all three of those movies really had the same, the same spirit to them. 
But originally, I was recommended for that movie by John Nelson, who, who AD'd it. John Nelson, our first AD. Annette, you'd worked with John quite a bit yourself over the years. Yes, actually, John was the first AD of the very first movie I ever worked on as a PA. That was back in 1997 in Seattle, Washington. I'm amazed that I haven't crossed paths with you guys in the last 10 years or so. Whenever anybody sees me, they change sides of the street. (laughs) (laughs) That might prevent you from getting more movie roles, Dave. (laughs) So what was the set like on Replicate? I had a great time. Doug Curtis was the UPM. Doug is always a very relaxed, easygoing guy. Love working with Doug. I've always loved the way John runs the set. The cast was a blast. Eugene Levy was fun. I had a good time on the movie. It definitely had a, a smaller movie kind of feel. I do remember it seemed like there was a lot of running around, but it was just a great time. Yeah, it was a very relaxed set compared to other comedies that we'd worked on. This one did have, uh, and I think it was with the cast and the crew, they seemed to let the actors do a lot of improv in the scenes as they were shooting them. Because I just remember you know, watching the shots and it seemed like they were... They'd hit the points of the script, but then they always let them just keep going until they either, you know, were out of frame or out of film. That was kind of unique that they just let them play more with it. For example, are there scenes from the movie that you think particularly benefited from that ad-lib impromptu approach? I know a lot of Eugene Levy's stuff. I don't know if it was ad-libbed, but he tended to kind of ad-lib on tangent at time. He would work within the script, but And then we worked with him on Mighty Wind, too. So he's definitely, as far as ad-libbing goes, he's certainly one of the greats out there doing that. Now, there was, because this, you know, several scenes took place in the lab, and there was the hamster that we had the animal wrangler to provide, you know, however many of the live hamsters whenever there was a shot that we weren't using the little stuffed one. And as I remember, they were really particular about, you know, how much it could be under the light and who could handle it because there was one time where I I don't want to name names, but an overzealous crew member wanted to get the shot going. So this crew member put the hamster in without the wrangler being there. And when the wrangler came in and saw that the hamster had been moved from the cage to the filming area, I don't know that if they went as far as stopping it, but they did uh, make it known that nobody else is to touch the hamster. And then, Scott, didn't we have a couple of prosthetic ones made? We had some prosthetic ones made that were totally fake, but then we had had a bunch of taxidermed ones as well that Bischoff's, which is it's a taxidermy shop in Burbank, which tend to do almost all of the taxiderm films. And I remember I had a ton of paperwork I had to fill out with the ASPCA that said that none of these hamsters were taxidermed in particular for the film. There was a place out in Fontana. I remember we had to send a PA or a transportation driver out there. And they're the place that supplies pets to Petco and to to pet stores. They're a, a distribution center. So they have thousands of them out there. So we asked them if they could put aside a couple of deceased hamsters, which they did. And I remember the producers were amazed that we paid more for the deceased ones than we would have if we would have gone into Petco and bought live ones. So we bought the deceased hamsters, we brought them over to Bischoff's, and they taxidermed them for us. But I remember all the paperwork we had to fill out just saying that we didn't go to Petco and buy $5 hamsters and And kill them. And take care of them. Yeah, rub them out. Wow. So Annette, as the key set production assistant, 
you were apparently not wrangling the hamster. Uh, no, no. On that show, I actually ran first team. So I spent the majority of my time at base camp and working with the talent, getting them through hair, makeup, and wardrobe, getting them to set, and would assist on set occasionally. So tell us more about the cast. How were they to work with? It's like, from what I remember, <laughs> you know, it's like everyone was awesome. You know, Allie and her sister, who was her stand-in slash body double, James O'Day was, you know, very nice, very funny. And of course, Eugene Levy. It's like everyone on the show was easygoing, made my life, my job easy. One of the nicest cast members was the guy who played the bartender. <laughs> it's a very unappreciated part, but... Did you see the, on Facebook or on YouTube, yeah, there's a full version of the movie in Spanish. And I was watching the, the dubbed version and I see the bartender giving his bit and the voice sounds very similar. It had had that same... Well, I mean, that guy was so popular in small circles that everybody was trying to sound like him. Yeah. <laughs> so for our listening audience, David Clark, you can see him as the bartender in the scene in the movie where they're in the bar and he has a line. David, how'd you end up with that scene? Well, this is one of the reasons I had to leave Los Angeles. Um, <laughs> I made promises that I couldn't keep. Uh, no, really, uh, I just, it started with asking, then it went to begging and then because I was there on the day they were filming and every other person in the Screen Actors Guild handbook of available talent was not available that day and they let me have it. <laughs> and so, uh, Annette, how was Dave in hair and makeup? I don't recall him going through hair and makeup because he's so beautiful already. I think they just probably, you know, threw a shirt on him and put him on set. Yep, they just pulled up my pants. <laughs> took my headset off and pushed me in front of the camera. So Scott, how was that day for you when uh, your oh, I, I, prop master was off doing his own thing or not, not assisting? I got a kick out of it. I loved watching it. It was fun. And I still got to do my prop job too. Yeah. <laughs> we kept, we kept the uh, walkie talkie close by. They would only pay me for one though. I don't, I don't think they would let me take my prop pay that day. It was like, okay, you got to do one or the other. Take the actor pay or take the prop assistant day. Which is usually what it is, right? And that mm -hmm. when, when a, a crew member, if you're going to work as a, as an extra or you, you change positions, you can't get both. Correct. They don't want you double dipping. So you have to make the choice one or the other. There was one scene I remember so well. There's a scene where Ali Landry's character is eating donuts and we had a product placement deal with Krispy Kreme. We had this big deal with Krispy Kreme donuts and they were going to supply us all the donuts we needed because in the script, Ali kind of puts her face into the box and just goes, Rah! it just destroys the whole box. So I needed, I don't know, like a couple dozen boxes of Krispy Kreme. So we send transportation to the uh, distributor to pick up all these donuts. And uh, the, the driver pulls up to the place. It's a product placement place. It's not a Krispy Kreme store. And they give him all of these donuts and he starts eating them. On the way home, he probably ate like two boxes of donuts. And then and when he gets to set, he starts giving boxes away to other drivers, figuring, well, you know, I have 30, 40 boxes. Production doesn't need all of these. And they give me like 12 boxes. And I go up to Obi, the uh, transportation coordinator, and I'm like, Obi, we, we sent you for like 40 boxes of donuts. Where did they all go? And he had no idea. He's like, oh, I don't know where they went. Click, click, click. <laughs> and he didn't, he didn't know where the donuts went. So finally, we traced them down to the drivers. And now we didn't have time for them to go all the way back to the product placement place. So I told him, I go, you have to go to a local Krispy Kreme when they were still in LA. And I need you to buy me 25 boxes of donuts. We need all of these. These are for picture. 
And he wanted me to give him petty cash. And I go, no, I'm not giving you petty cash. Tell the driver to pay for him. But I just thought it's great. It it, it just fell into such a a Teamster stereotype. You send a Teamster to get donuts and they end up taking three quarters of them. (laughs) Dave used to do the best Obi impersonation. (laughs) If he was still around, it would be a lot funnier. What? (laughs) Obi, Obi Obi has since died. Oh, sorry to hear that. Yeah. I got to bring it down, Scott. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's good to know. There's the ins and outs of film business. Oh, another uh, thing that I got to do, another part of me that was in Replicate was on reshoots, Eugene had already been wrapped and they needed a close-up of him pushing a button for one of the experiments. And apparently my hand fit his ring. So that's how they picked me. And again, because all the other actors registered with SAG were unavailable, my hand went in to push the button, but they probably spent, yeah, they spent about two hours cutting my fingernails, doing a manicure, even with a mascara brush, darkening the hair on my hand. I guess the hair on my hand is lighter than Eugene's. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they spent more time doing that than anything they did for when I was the bartender. Without a doubt, my getting onto that movie is my favorite story of ever getting a job. I had gone into interview and John had recommended me. I went in an interview. I hadn't, I didn't know Doug Curtis at this point. This is the movie I believe I met Doug on. And uh, Doug had had somebody he normally worked with. So he wanted to bring on that person. And I had worked with John a bunch and John had recommended me. So I go in, do the interview. And I get a call back that, sorry, they, they didn't need me on it, that they were going to go with Doug's choice. I'm like, all right, great. So my son was a little boy at the time. The two of us got tickets to go to New York. My wife was busy with something else. So the next morning, we're on a plane to New York. John had been rallying to get me on it. We get into New York on Saturday night, whatever. On Sunday, I get a call from from John or somebody that we had gotten the job and I start Monday morning. <laughs> and this is when I had bought non-refundable tickets and we were supposed to be in New York another week. So now it's Sunday morning. I call up the airline and the only way they'll change the tickets is if, if there's a death in the family or a medical emergency. I say, well, the, I, there is a medical emergency. I say, the reason I need to come home is that my wife got extremely sick and we have an infant child at home, even though he was with me at the time, but there's nobody to watch him and I have to get home right away. And they said, okay, we just need to get a letter from the hospital describing your wife's condition. I call up my wife and I tell her, you have to go to the doctor's office. Just get them to write you a note that you have a stomach virus and I'll be able to, they'll be able to put me on a, a flight like three in the morning or four in the morning on Monday. So Marina goes to the Woodland Hills Medical Center complaining of having a stomach problem. They admit her into the hospital. <laughs> this, is, this becomes like a sitcom. She's there about six hours. They're giving her different kinds of medication. They've taken her temperature. They've put her in an IV. And I didn't know any of this. So I'm waiting. I'm like calling her and calling her, trying to find out, did you get the note? Did you get the note? Finally, she, she calls me back. She goes, I got your note. And I'm like, oh, great, thanks. And I'm about to hang up to call the airline. She's like, no, not thanks. And she tells me the whole ordeal that she had been, she goes, I have spent the better part now of the whole day in the hospital. I have been poked and prodded. Actually, they wanted to admit her overnight. And she said, no, that she's feeling much better now and she really (laughs) needs to get home. And they gave her the note and she went home and she faxed me the note and I got the job. I was on the plane the next morning. Skid, you need to understand that this woman grew up in the Soviet Union. (laughs) (laughs) And the day she married Scott, she started thinking, you know, it wasn't that bad over there. 
We did a lot of prep in Scott's driveway because at that time he had a garage. We kept a lot of our supplies in there and he kept his truck parked at home. So in our prep, a lot of times we would get creative and it may not have been creative in any way to do with the show we were prepping, but we had supplies and ideas. I don't remember who, I don't think I had thought of this or I wasn't aware of it about, you know, you put dry ice into a water bottle and the bottle explodes. If, you know, when it hits the water, it expands and blows up. We were having fun with that. And there was a cinder block wall along his driveway that was hollow and just asking for a bottle to be put inside it. We were trying to <laughs> see what the bottle looked like after it exploded, but they just shattered. So we're like, we need to contain it somehow. So we set one up, drop it in the cinder block wall, run around the back of the truck. And as we're giggling and waiting, we start to think, what if the pressure blows the cinder block apart? All your cars are right here. And it didn't. It blows up. We find the bottle and we're looking at how cool that looks. And then Scott's wife, Marina, comes outside and she says, what are you guys doing? Are you setting off fireworks? Because one of the neighbors called and said, are your kids playing with firecrackers? And I told him, no, it's my husband and his idiot friend blowing up water bottles. <laughs> so every day we made Marina miss the Soviet Union. <laughs> Annette, you're a good sport. Well, it was so, you guys are so much fun. I always refer to you guys as, you know, the Scott and Dave, the prop comedy team. We used to have a logo on the door of the prop truck. It said the Scott and Dave show. And there was a, a PA. I remember she went by the name of Squirrel. And really fun. I really liked her. And she had drawn this very cartoony caricature of the two of us. Oh, Squirrel drew that for you? I know Squirrel. And remember, Dave, we also used to wear the, the white jumpsuits? Yep. Annette, I want to go back to something you said earlier. So Allie Landry, her sister was her stand-in. Is that correct? That's correct. They were almost twins. I don't, I don't think they were, but I mean, similar, you know, body type, hair, the whole bit. So when you're watching Replicate and you see the scenes where there's, you know, two of them together, it's either Allie and her sister or what we would do is we would shoot, you know, like we would block off the cameras and shoot Allie on one side and then they would trade places and then Allie would do her replicate part of the scene. So it was all done with the two of them and, and locking off the cameras. Scott, do you remember what campus, or Annette, you might remember it. UCLA. Well. Oh, it was. Yeah. There's a scene where they're out in the park, and uh, I think the actor's real name is Desmond, who was James Roday's uh, sidekick in that and they stop at a hot dog cart. And I remember we had the hot dog cart on the prop truck. And the truck, of course, is parked a million miles away. So we have to roll the truck all the way into this middle area, this big grassy area. But they're constantly moving the position of the cart. And the cart has an umbrella on it. And I just remember having to move the cart all over the place, up and down hills. The cart doesn't move easily. You have to take the umbrella off because you really can't move it with the umbrella on. It's just one of those days that you're doing all these little tweakings and it doesn't seem like a big deal. And when you watch the movie, no one would ever give two thoughts about the hot dog cart. But when I watch it, I just remember Dave and I having to pick up everything, move the cart, hand out backpacks and books to all the students because the movie wasn't that big yet. Annette, we did have a lot. I feel like we had a lot of background on that, a lot of students to kind of fill in the area. Yeah, yeah, it's funny because I literally watched it this morning on YouTube going through all the little segments to try to refresh my memory. And yeah, there 
there was quite a bit of, of movement when we we're out in the quad or the exterior of the campus. The one thing I've changed now in the years when I prop big background scenes, back then what I used to do is we would go out, we would rent a hundred backpacks, a couple hundred feet of books and pass them all out. And one, the rentals was, was very expensive. It took a lot of time to hand all that stuff out. And then at the end of the day, it took forever to check it all in. Now I just have the second ADs tell all the background, bring your own backpacks, bring your own stuff. What is it? You have to bump people like $5. Yeah, I think it's a five fifty now for a backpack. Right. It's a lot better to have them bring their own stuff than me have to put on extra people and all the extra aggravation. It's just easier to have background self-prop with that kind of stuff. I did notice that when I was looking at scenes from Replicate. It reminded me of exactly that, just the pile of backpacks and the fact that the prop house rented us books by the foot. Yeah. And I remember we had extra help those days when we had the students just to hand it out and to check it all back in because, you know, there would have been a, a replacement fee if we didn't bring back all the backpack. And sometimes the way prop houses do it, they don't charge for the backpack based on what the backpack is worth. They always add basically a penalty charge because they have to go out and buy them and they try to jack up the price to dissuade people from shopping for props. You lose one or two backpacks and it more than makes up for the money it would have cost just to have all the background self-prop. So you talked about shooting at UCLA. I also recognize the driving scenes were in the Westwood neighborhood as well. Did you guys shoot there many, many days or did you relocate to studio for the interior shots? I, I don't really remember don't. where the studio was. It, I think it was Culver Studios. That could be it. Yes, it was because I remember that's where the office and our production meetings were in I, I mean, I, I don't know. It's whatever studio has the house that is at the beginning of Gone with the Wind, that big white plantation looking house. That's Culver. Okay. I remember going in there because it, it had, uh, it was like an old style studio that had a commissary and the sound stages had the old double wall with the quilted right. insulation. And, and it, I just thought that was pretty cool, just the age of it and the history of, you know, what other things had been filmed there. I believe that's where their house was built. All of the, the interiors, all of the, the house interiors and stuff. I think the interior lab was built there. I think we did a lot of the work there, a lot of the work at UCLA. That was also the day that Obi lost my truck. We, we were shooting, we were shooting in Westwood. It was the day that we were shooting in one of the bars and we get to set in the morning. We had been shooting in downtown LA the night before and the prop truck was in a parking lot. And what transportation would traditionally do is they would do what's called rounders. They would pick up the trucks, bring them to the next location, then send a van with some drivers back to the previous location to get the other trucks and just keep recycling the drivers. My prop truck got left at the parking lot the previous night. So that morning, Dave and I are looking all over for the prop truck and we can't find it. And then on the walkie, I'm starting to hear John wanting to start rehearsing with props. And I find Obi and Obi couldn't remember where the prop truck was. And then finally he realized that they never picked it up. So we're in Westwood, downtown LA. This is early in the morning. It's easily, easily a half hour there and a half hour back. I didn't want to out Obi to John. And I just kept putting it off and putting it off. And we're getting really, really close to shooting. And I'm telling John that we were parked far away. Finally, I had to go up to John and I just took him aside. And I said, look, Transpo left our truck at the other location. They're bringing it here. You know, I'm calling them. We, we had cell phones and the truck arrived minutes before we were about to shoot. We threw the door open, 
grabbed whatever props we needed. Luckily, it was a bar, so we didn't need glasses. But, you know, we had watches and rings and that kind of stuff. And we propped it really moments before the camera started running, which is not unlike leaving a gun three miles behind when Kiefer Sutherland needed his weapon and wondered why Dave didn't have his prop gun. And Scott never made that mistake again. <laughs> no. What were you guys on with Kiefer Sutherland where you didn't have his gun? It was a movie called uh, Truth or Consequences, which is an excellent, excellent movie. It got very minimal theatrical release. And that one has some great behind-the-scenes stories. Future yeah, podcast there's, advertising. There's a, there's a podcast. <laughs> great props, Actually, that, I'm sure. Yeah. Excellent props. And hot dogs. We had hot dogs on that one as well. And they better be hot. Okay. I, I don't know if <laughs> this will make it to the final cut, Skid. But I do remember the guys in the lab replicate this girl. She comes out naked. That was day one of filming. In the movie, you see Allie Landry leave. You see Allie uh, out and she's, she's naked because she's been cloned. So she's walking across campus naked. Originally, they wanted to show frontal of her. And the morning of, she said that she didn't want to do it. And... I think they had to find a background person or they brought in a model or somebody to do the walk for her. And even then she said, if you're going to show me from neck down, you still can't show anything that's going to lead people to believe that that's me. But if you watch the, one of the early scenes in the movie, you do see a woman walking across, but it's been very, very Hollywood cleaned where her hair is draping or somehow the angle makes it that you know that she's walking across naked because you see guys turning around and dropping their books and everybody being amazed at this gorgeous woman walking naked across campus. That was one of the other parts they... Uh wouldn't let me read for <laughs> but they let you but they did let you audition and test for it <laughs> yeah. yeah they said they didn't have enough time to clean up my back to make me look like a naked alley landry <laughs> i thought you sold it speaking of the cast tell us some more about uh, eugene levy working with him Dave, you and I had done back-to-back -back movies with Eugene Levy. We had done the two American Pie movies. We did Mighty Wind and Replicate. So within maybe two years, we did four or so movies with him. Super friendly guy. I loved just talking to him about various projects he had done. Very low maintenance. I mean, Annette probably has better experiences with him than, than we do because we kind of just saw him on the put a prop in his hand but I loved working with him. I, I love the fact that after a while he knew my name. I got a kick out of just knowing that Eugene Levy knew who Scott Buckwald was. Yeah, he was a very down-to-earth type of person. It's the, you know Sometimes actors just want to come to set, do their thing, and then go back, either you know go home, go to their trailer, or whatever. They just don't want to do anything outside of the scene that they're there to shoot. But he was one, he could hang around set, you could have a conversation with him and just I think he enjoyed talking to people, and especially if you were asking him about other things he had done. He was very easy to talk to and, you know, just really friendly guy. Plus, you know, being funny, that didn't hurt either. Yeah, I, I agree with Scott and Dave. Yeah, very um, easygoing, down to earth, um, a pleasure to work with. But that always makes my job easy. Speaking of your job, Annette, were there days that didn't go so well, where you had challenges getting everyone to where they needed to be? Uh, not that I recall on that project. It was one of those things everyone was having a lot of fun on the project. And since it's a comedy, things are a little lighter and, and easier. And it was a great project to work on. It just seemed very smooth and schedule wasn't bad. You know, the crew just got along. There was a lot of fun on the set between the scenes. I will say that's one thing I liked about the, the John Nelson era. I love the way John and Wendy and Annette, just from the AD side, business was always the, the, the main point, 
but the fun of the business was also very much there. And for folks at home, if you haven't gone and watched Replicate, as Annette and I both mentioned, it is available on YouTube. And in part six, at five minutes and 26 seconds, that's where you can see David as the bartender. Thanks for joining me today and revisiting Replicate. Thank you, Skid. It was fun. Yeah, I enjoyed these. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. I look forward to joining you again sometime. Are we still going to have Dave back or are you guys sick of each other? I'll come back. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a wrap on Replicate. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us five stars wherever you get your podcasts. And please tell your friends. Email me your feedback via skid, S-K-I-D, at blowthelineoneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. And you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. On both of those platforms, we're at podbelowtheline. Thanks, as always, to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our logo. Next episode, I'll be joined by the assistant director's team for the kids' show, Henry Danger, currently airing on Nickelodeon and recently renewed for its fifth season. Nickelodeon airs reruns on a regular basis, so it's pretty easy to catch on the DVR if you're curious to watch an episode or two before the podcast. Either way, please join us for the show. 